You are listening to the Business Society Podcast, formerly known as Think Like a CFO. The Business Society is a podcast for entrepreneurs and business owners, where we talk all about what it means to be an entrepreneur and manage the money in your business and personal life. I'm your host, Melissa Houston, and I am a CPA with over 20 years of experience working with entrepreneurs just like you. And I am here to share my knowledge and love of all things business. Check out my blog at thebusinesssociety.co and make sure you check out my articles at forbes.com. Lee Mayer was an insurance executive with no design background, and she created Havenly as a direct result from a common problem. She had just moved from a tiny New York City apartment to a multi-bedroom home in Denver with no idea on how to furnish it. She turned to local interior designers and had immediate sticker shock over how much their services and their suggested furnishings would cost. With only $20,000 in seed money, the Harvard Business School graduate created Havenly, the popular online interior design service that is accessible to the masses with their affordable design program options. Havenly just had a record-setting year that cements them as a market share and category leader with a run rate of over $100 million. I am so happy to introduce you to Lee Mayer and share this discussion with you today. Hi, Lee. Welcome to the Business Society Podcast. I am so excited to be meeting with you today. How are you? I'm so well. Thank you so much for having me on today. Well, thank you so much for coming. I mean, I hear about your your business, Havenly, and I think it's absolutely fantastic. You've got quite a story behind it. So the reason why I really wanted you to get on this podcast was so that you could share it with everybody. You know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are listening, and I think your story is really motivational and, and inspiring. And I know it inspired me, so I wanted to share you with, with all my listeners, and anybody that you can reach would be fantastic. Do you want to tell us a bit about your business before we get going so people understand? Yeah, so Havenly is the easiest way to shop for your home. And what we do is we actually interior decorate your home all online. So you work with a designer who's a real professional human. You work with them online. And then at the end, you get a visual, a 3D visual that sort of shows you what your room could look like were you to use our design. And you can actually shop directly from there. So you can shop across multiple vendors. And it's really what we're intending to solve for is this idea that like everyone really deserves a beautiful space. But for some of us, it's out of reach either because we don't know where to go or we haven't had the time to think about it or we don't have interior designers in our network that we feel like we're comfortable working with. And so we're really trying to ensure that everyone has access to just a beautifully designed space, regardless of where they are and their budget. That's really interesting. Okay, so just from a curiosity consumer standpoint, now I have a very awkward shaped room. And you know, there's a couple of pieces of furniture that I think would be really fantastic in there. So how would I go about using Havenly to help me plan out that room space? 
Yeah. So basically what we do is we work around your needs. So you go online, you give us a little bit of information about you. So things that you want to keep that you love, things that you, you don't want to keep that you don't love. And then you upload things like floor plans and measurements of your room or even just photos of your room. And we basically, we use that to help work with you. So if you have some stuff that you think you're going to love, but you're not sure, we can work with that. We also sort of go through the process of saying, okay, you already have these things. Why don't we figure out some other items to really spruce it up and make it work for you? So you said you had an awkward shaped room. We can basically do things like teach you how to block things off, plan things out for you, and then you can choose all of the items that you want. So we suggest a lot of things for you. You can pick and choose from what we suggest, but our hope is over the collaboration period, you really end up with a design that really works for you, regardless of the shape of your space. So that's a really neat idea. Like, How did you come up with this idea? Yeah, so for me, honestly, I come at this from the point of view of the consumer. So I moved from New York City to Denver, Colorado. And in New York City, you have these teeny, teeny, tiny little apartments. And in Denver, you have a lot more space. So I moved here. I bought a house. And I had all this like small furniture that very clearly didn't fill the space in my house. But at the same time, I was really busy. I was working. The company I was working for was going public. I think for me, it was such a need to have like a really relaxing space that felt like me. Like that was a form of self-care for me. But it was interesting. No one was willing to help me get there. So even though I felt like I had a little bit of a design sense, there's, that's still, there's a big difference between I know what style is to like I know exactly which rug, couch, pillows, chairs, coffee table, lamps, et cetera, to buy. And most interior designers, you know, my budget, even though I thought it was really generous, like most interior designers won't even work with people underneath a certain budget. It's so true, right? Well, and it was, it was very like sort of, I mean, it was almost a little like sad for me because I was like, wait, this is a lot of money for me, but this whole industry won't necessarily serve as folks like myself. And that's when I realized that, you know, this is something that as this generation, as my generation, I belong to the millennial generation, which is like a digital first generation. As we mature into kind of our home purchase and home buying years, I think one of the things that's sort of interesting is bringing a model that's accessible. So it's affordable, it's inclusive, it allows for lots and lots of different design styles and tastes, and allows you to sort of conduct a lot of the service element online and kind of pick and choose your items to shop from. And, you know, I think we basically, I really felt strongly that for our generation and for a lot of other people in America, what they want is something that's fun and delightful and accessible. And potentially being online and using technology was a really great way to, to bring that to our clients. Absolutely. So when did you start your business? Was it like pre-pandemic? It was pre-pandemic. So we have been in business for a few years now. The funny thing about my entrepreneurial story is like, it was a little accidental. I don't know that I ever sort of came out of the gate saying, I'm definitely going to start a business. What ended up happening was, you know, we sort of thought about this idea. And then all of a sudden, what I realized was I was spending all of my time on this idea. And then that's when we realized like, oh, wow, we've started a thing. Like, let's, you know, maybe this should be my full-time job. And so that was a few years ago. So we we raised our first round of funding, seed funding in 2015. And we launched publicly in 2014. So we've been going since then. That's really amazing. So did you start the business like as a side hustle? Or were you just planning the business at that point? 
I think it was, you know, it was intended to maybe just be a side hustle for me while I went and did something else. And and maybe side hustle might be even more serious than how I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it as like an exploration, like something intellectually interesting for me, but not necessarily something where I knew for sure that I'd be, you know, leaving my full-time job and, you know, going and starting this and working on it for years and building a team. So I always find it really interesting to see how people can approach entrepreneurship in different ways and start companies in different ways. And sometimes you're, you know, you you have a mission to go out and do it. And, and you know, I know a lot of people that definitively wanted to start companies. But for me, it was it was a little accidental and I kind of fell into it by happenstance. And I think I'm I'm honestly pretty glad about that. I'm a relatively risk-averse individual. And so I wonder if I'd put a lot of thought into it at the beginning. I wonder if I would have talked myself out of it. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely a challenge for a lot of entrepreneurs. That's for sure. It it, it is very risky. So congratulations for taking the risk. And obviously, it's paid off very, very well. Yeah, so far, it's been, you know, the best professional challenge in my career. So I mean, it sounds like it all went really, really well. But I think as every entrepreneur knows, we always have challenges and we face them on a regular basis. Do you have any challenges that you experienced that you might want to share with us and work us through how you overcame these challenges? Yeah, I think the first challenge we faced when we after we launched was really kind of team. So one of the things that's kind of funny that happens in you know, small startups is you hire a lot of people, but you hire people typically either because, you know, you already know them. So they're friends of yours or they're in your network. So they're easy to reach or they're relatively inexpensive. And so one of the things that's kind of interesting is as you start to grow as a company, you start to realize that there are needs in the company that you need to fill. And sometimes the people that you've hired all the way at the beginning aren't the right people for the next stage of the company. Now, if you think about what I just said, in particular, the fact that like some of your earliest employees are people that, you know, by the way, feel like family. I mean, these are people that either you knew previously or you worked together in a tiny, tiny little room together. So it feels you know, really material. And some of the hardest things that that we have to do, or I've had to do as a CEO is really think about who's the right person in the right seat, and then make those hard calls around potentially moving people around or, you know, in, in, you know, the worst case, moving people out of the company, or like, you know, hiring people on top of people. So hiring a VP over a director. And, you know, I think it's always what I always say is, I think running a company has so many challenges, but for me, one of the hardest challenges is actually the people elements. It's the side I love the most because it's so interesting and I think it gives me so much joy, but it's also, you know, you're dealing with human beings and their lives and their livelihoods. And so it's not a clinical business decision. There's a human at the other end of it. There's a lot of tough decisions sometimes. Yeah, there are. And like, and I think one of the things that I think I did and I think a lot of people do is you start to like not avoid those decisions or even avoid the conflict because it feels hard. But inevitably, you know, what that does, it just kind of both slows down your progress. It makes the conversation even harder to have. Lots of bad things kind of come from that kind of thing. And so I've learned the hard lesson of if a decision needs to be made, you should make it early. Yeah, for sure. As hard as it is, it doesn't get any easier the longer we uh, avoid it. Uh, Exactly. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. So you started the company from scratch. And how many people are you employing now? So we have over 800 designers. And then we have about 120 people, a little more than that, I believe, on full-time staff. Wow, that's a huge company. 
Yeah. Did you did you experience a lot of growing pains? Oh, so many. And I, I mean, I think it's from my perspective, growing pains kind of come and go at every stage. There's sort of these numbers that are out there in the ether that people talk about where like if you pass, you know, the first stage is kind of like 10 to 15 employees. So if you pass 10 to 15 employees, that's one area where you might see growing pains. And then it's when you pass 50-ish employees, and then it's again 100 to 125, which is where we are right now. And then there's another one that's like at, at 250. And I think you know it has a lot to do with how able you are to be in touch with the outer rings of the company. And so if you think about it, you know before we're 10 to 15, you know everyone, you know everyone super well. It feels like a family. But then you go to 10 to 15, and people still know you. You still know them, but you know that deep level of connection sort of isn't there. Same thing at 50. So at 50, you stop knowing everyone's name. And that's a really interesting thing. But typically people still know you and you're accessible enough. So almost all of your employees at 50 will will still feel connected to you. And so it's still a little easier to sort of distill the vision and communicate where, where we're going. I think at 100 to 125, I mean, frankly, I don't know everyone's name, although we try very, very hard. I do. But also these days, and particularly in a remote world. Yeah, it's not like you're passing in the hallway. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, I just don't have time. Like, even if they wanted to sort of get time in my calendar with that many employees, it's really hard to get sort of one-on-one time with anyone. And I think one of the things that's super interesting right now is I think a lot of the things that I think are super special about our team and our leadership team is we're all human beings that are trying really hard to build something. We're all really smart. I think we're all mission oriented around what we're building. But the further you get from me as a leader or the leadership team as leaders, the harder it is to remember that. And so, and in particular, again, in a remote world, one of the things that we continually try to do is ensure people understand our thinking. Like, why did we do it this way? Why, you know, why do we make this decision versus this decision? And it's it's just harder, right? Like communicating at that level of scale, you know, particularly as we go from 120 to, you know, 200 and some is, is a lot, you know, it takes a lot more thinking. You have to be a lot more process oriented around it. And that's, you know, that's been a change for me. And I think a lot of us as we've grown, Yeah, for sure. Now, during the pandemic, did you find that that negatively impacted your business or was it a positive impact? So I think, you know, the first, I'd say, three to four weeks of the pandemic when, you know, I think nobody knew what was going on. on. I mean, you remember like super dark days in March and the market had really slid in, in February. And, you know, I think most most of our customers have a little bit of market exposure. And so that I think those three or four weeks were were not great weeks. But no, you know, I think the home space in general has been a bright spot. We saw a lot of demand come through. In fact, so much demand that we ended up on an enormous wait list last year. We left quite a bit of money on the table because we just didn't have enough designers to service the sort of spike in demand. And so I think that was sort of interesting to work through a little bit. I don't know about in the U.S., but in Canada, it skyrocketed. Like the price of lumber is ridiculous. I know, yeah. And trying to get anybody to come in and work on your house, well, forget that. That's just not going to happen until next year. I mean, even like ordering outdoor furniture right now, like I can't get you anything until, you know, September. (laughs) Yeah, it's so crazy. But I guess it makes sense because everybody's at home. And when you're at home, you want to beautify your surroundings. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, like our homes did so much for us this last year. It was our workplace. It was our dinner, date night. It was our movie theaters, our children's schools. You know, it, it, I mean, it's just like the way we, we perceived home has really changed. I think, by the way, I don't think that's going away. Like, I think 
people continue to sort of think about investing in their home in a, in a material way that's different from where we were pre-COVID. Yeah. And, but for your business being online to begin with before COVID, it must've made a huge difference for you as well. I mean, that was a huge advantage being online already. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was really great. And again, I think, look, the future as a more digital native consumer sort of takes over most consumer spending over the next five, 10, 15 years. I mean, the future really is online for the most part, certainly like that is a relatively safe bet. E-commerce is having a moment. Mm-hmm. Online services are having a moment. And I think I think that that's sort of, you know, one of those principles we feel is really interesting in this moment because I think what's happened is because of the last year, some of the trends that we thought would happen over the next five years all happened in like 18 months. And and so, it, you know, it was, it was almost like, whoa, you know, this is, this is a thing. People are doing things online in a way that they've never done it before. And they're not stopping, right? So, yeah, yeah. you know, I think that's what's kind of cool is once people realize the ease of doing something online, they tend to continue to do things online. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned earlier that, you know, in 2015, you had gone for funding. Now, as a woman starting a business, had you faced any challenges while you were trying to seek venture capital? Yeah, I think I, I think I do. I'm also a woman of color. So, I, you know, you sort of have to add both checkboxes to the list. And I think one of the things, that, you know, definitely 2015, by the way, one of the hardest parts about that first round of funding is people weren't even really aware, or at least women were aware, but the conversation around access to funding was a lot more limited than it is today. And so in 2015, you almost felt like, you know, things were hard, but there also wasn't even, you know, sort of a community to sort of go back to and trade stories with. You just felt kind of alone in the journey. And I actually, you know, one of the things that I remember watching, and it's so hard, right? Because I only have my experience and, you know, I hear stories about other people, but, and it's, you know, I think it's hard, you know, we're also selling a business that primarily markets to women. And so one of, you know, the classic fonts I get a lot is, oh, well, let me see what my wife thinks. And my response to that a little bit is like, you know, sometimes these are investors that invest in like things as varied as cryptocurrency and space tech. And I'm like, do you ask your wife about all of those things? Like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, there's a little bit of this, like, I understand why they do, you know, investors may do that, but it feels incredibly diminishing. And so, you know, I think that's a small example of sort of some of the things that I think a lot of women have to go through to kind of get funding. But, you know, you do, you see, you see women, men with sort of businesses that are sometimes smaller, get tremendous amounts of funding. And then you see women and, you know, I know a lot of women that have incredible business dynamics and fundamentals and have trouble in a way that, you know, sometimes it feels like white men who are raising money don't. Absolutely. I mean, I remember reading an article not too long ago. I mean, before the pre-pandemic levels of venture capital funding for women was, I think, 2.8%. And during the pandemic, it actually went down, if this article that I was reading was correct, yeah, to 2.3%. So it's not getting any better for women, which is really sad. Yeah, I don't think it is. And I think the hardest part about a lot of this is what it ultimately means is you're leaving great entrepreneurs on the table. You know, I think Katrina Lake, who runs, who's the CEO of Stitch Fix, which went public a few years ago, talks publicly about her challenges raising money. And she literally took a company from zero to public in, you know, whatever, seven, eight years. 
imagine the people, in fact, I know some folks that said no to her and, you know, really regret it. I think that that's just such a shame from an investor standpoint, from an economy standpoint, like, how is that a good thing to leave 50% of your talent sort of undercapitalized? Exactly. And the article that I was reading was also making the valid point that 80% of household decisions are made by the woman. Yeah. Like, how can you how can you possibly leave out that much of the market? You yeah. Know? Yeah. So I think women know how to target women. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. Just a, obviously, there's a man behind that decision. But, you know, I digress. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I don't. Exactly. So maybe this is a great place to start talking about your recent funding. So I think the best way to say it is, you know, look, we've we've grown the business a lot. We're on a hundred million dollar revenue run rate. I think the decision that we're sort of trying to figure out is, you know, look, like we raised a thirty million dollar Series C, and I think that's a really exciting number. You know, we're partway through deploying that capital because it happened a little bit ago. We're very excited about where we're we're going, and I think also what's really been fun is sort of scaling the business. So so these days. Because of the interest in home, we're going to be taking a lot of that capital and deploying it against really interesting sort of hopefully value add features for our clients. And I think from our perspective, just seeing the growth of the business and and hitting some of these revenue targets has been really, really fundamentally awesome for the team. Yeah, it must be totally motivating. And this is a question of curiosity mostly is, you know, like those are huge funding numbers that you just gave. Like, do you know if those are higher than average for women to receive? that amount of funding. Do you know what the statistics are on that? So I don't know the exact statistics on average funding. I do know that there's, I think it's over $50 million. The amount of female CEO and female run companies, I think is under a hundred in the United States. A hundred women? A hundred companies. Yeah. Okay. And that's, and that's a pretty specific, so it's venture backed female founded and female CEO. Obviously, there are some female founding teams or female founders who aren't CEOs, like that kind of thing. And that might expand that number. But it's actually, and this is a slightly dated number. So this is before, this is 2019, so pre-pandemic. But it's a fairly small amount of people. And it's it's like not, I think it's emblematic of, of that broader statistic, right? It's you know, very little of the venture capital dollars go to women. Smaller even than that is VC dollars that go to women of color. And so I think it's just a, a relatively rarefied group. However, I am seeing more and more female founded deals this year in 2021. So I'm kind of hopeful that maybe maybe that pandemic trend will reverse itself as the world kind of opens up again. Exactly. And hopefully it'll at least, you know, double or triple or quadruple, whatever happens, hopefully it will skyrocket those numbers because I know. You know, they're just so unfair right now. I mean, so, under 3%, there's a lot of room to grow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So knowing that there's a lot of room to grow, what type of advice would you offer other female entrepreneurs who are seeking funding? So I think the biggest thing that I always say is is go bold. I think one of the things that I have done wrong is I sometimes get too nervous to paint a big vision, even though I have it. My tendency, and I think maybe some other women's tendencies, is to like adhere to the facts because we typically have a little bit more than a touch of imposter syndrome around who we are and whether or not we deserve to be in the room. And so one of the things I always recommend to both, you know, women and men as founders is paint the big vision. Like don't be afraid to go bold in what you're sort of selling because the reality is that's what everyone else is doing and that's what a lot of investors are looking for. 
And so I think doing that, it, it, you know, there's this whole element of, of psychology where they say, if you smile, it actually makes you happy. So that's my whole thing. It's like, be bold because it'll make you feel a little, a little more fearless than you mm-hmm. maybe felt before. You know what I Absolutely. mean? Absolutely. Bring you a better sense of confidence. Yeah. For sure. I love that. Well, I, and I love that you shared your numbers and that you gave such excellent advice. Now, if there's one thing that you really want listeners to take away from this conversation today, what would that be? So I think from my perspective, a couple of things. So if you're thinking about starting a company, start a company. It is like the coolest experience and the coolest job in the world. And it can be incredibly rewarding and fulfilling. The second is, you know, I think the world is changing, but we've got a lot of space to grow. So remember to kind of form that community for people who may be underrepresented or need that help, because I think I think that's really meaningful in today's world. I love that. And I definitely appreciate your inspiration. I'm sure a lot of listeners will feel very inspired after listening to you. Now, if people want to reach out and check out your company, where can they find you? Yeah, so we're online at www.havenly.com. You can follow us across social at, at the Havenly. And yeah, I hope everyone checks out Havenly and gets a design. Yeah, for sure. And I'm definitely going to leave the links in the show notes as well for people to access very easily. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. I, I love your story and I really appreciate you sharing it. Thank you. This is super fun. Thanks for listening to the Business Society Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with someone you think would love it. Until next time, I'm Melissa Houston. And never forget, nobody will ever care about your money as much as you do. So never give your financial power away.